guys, and welcome back to Talking With Shadows, the conversation everybody has, but no one wants to admit to. Here with your host, Vic Waitley. And Marcus D. And first, we want to give a big shout out to our newest patron, Sean. Thank you so much for joining the One Candle family. Cheers to you, man. Absolutely. In today's episode, I'm going to be drinking Bud Light Orange. And I'm going to be trying the Bud Light Seltzer Lemon Lime. And I promise you, we're not being paid by Bud Light. This just is what I, I happen to have. It's kind of our go-to. While I was on vacation, I was drinking a lot of Sam Adams beer, by the way. While I was down there. So sometimes we do drink other things. I don't know. I, I drink a lot of those sour beers. It's just I don't it's have so, them stored at my house. because I so drink. gross. They're delicious. I just drink them the night I get they're them, disgusting. though. disgusting. Oh, my God. It's like drinking a warhead. But... Here's to you, Sean. There you go. That is to you, sir. And to all of our patrons and listeners uh, that check out this podcast. Thank you so much. We could not do this without you guys. So I had a very fantastic, relaxing uh, vacation. It felt great. So I am super excited to be back in the studio to talk about today's episodes and updates and catch everybody up on and what's I been going on. I stayed here and did nothing of interest. And fun fact, I'm also going on vacation next week. However, we're still going to get an episode up for you guys next week as well. So the very first thing that I want to do is let's talk about the let's talk about the names for our, uh, for, our, uh, for our listeners out okay, there. Okay, yeah, yeah. I'm yes. excited about this one. So for the last several episodes, we've been having you guys put your suggestions uh, down in the comments of our episodes to suggest names for our fans. And you guys have given us some great ones. Absolutely. We argued a lot over the five that we were going to pick. I'm still kind of butthurt about a couple of them because I thought some of them actually were kind of cool. Uh, but the ones we ended up going with uh, for our poll that we're going to put up on our Patreon are The Whispers, Shades, Shadowlings, Truth Seekers, and Candlelight Drifters. I like the, the, all of those names. Candlelight Drifters was kind of a late entry, but I it was it was, <laughs> like it was, a, it, was a, it was actually very good. I'm not gonna lie, I made a very strong case for Candalorians and Candle Bros. I'm not gonna lie, I really did. I was really pushing for those to get on there. But even if yours did not make the list, thank you so much for pitching it. Oh, absolutely, we appreciate it so much. Uh, so what we're gonna do, guys, is we are gonna give you guys until August 14th. Uh, to go over to our patron where our poll is going to be up, and it's going to be up for everybody to vote on. Even if you're not, a, even if you're not a patron, it's absolutely fine. You're still going to be able to see uh, the poll uh, to get your suggestion in, and to see which ones you guys want to do. And on our episode that we do after August 14th, we are going to announce uh, the winner of what we're going to be calling you guys uh, from now on going forward in our podcast and YouTube stuff. Yeah, looking forward to this. I am too. I'm very excited. I know some of the. I know the one that I really like, but I know the one I really like. I know, too. so but I can't I'll be happy with whatever. Yeah, you I choose. can't. I can't. I can't wait to see what you guys pick. So we're gonna put a link to our Patreon, by the way, in every episode. We're gonna continue to remind you guys, um, wherever you guys listen to this, how to go and vote for your favorite name for our fans. All right. The next thing that we're gonna do is we're gonna go over comments. We got two episodes of comments to go over uh, for today. 
we got to do comments from High Strangers on the High Seas, where we talked about the SS uh, Orang Medan, which was really great. Uh, very fantastic episode. Uh, if you guys didn't catch that episode, that was the episode where we talked about the mystery of the Orang Medan whenever uh, two ships found a crew of people that were deceased under some very strange circumstances. So, first off, we got Mr. Surfer Lonely said, Not gonna lie, the first like... Not gonna, not going to say first like so many do, but this case reminds me of the Manfred Fritz Jorat, whose mummified body was found in his yacht adrift on the Philippines. I'm not familiar with that one, but that's something that we should look into. I know, I know that there was def. I wonder if he's talking about those giant bats sometimes that are found in the Philippines. I mean, there's like some people-sized bats that can be seen over there. If I'm correct in what he's talking about. I missed us, but we're going to come back to that, being able to talk about that again. Don't you? That's, that's going to come back. Uh, Lishane, I'm really hoping I pronounced that right. Let me know if I get that wrong, because I know that you've commented on our stuff before. Uh, Lishane said, this podcast is my go-to while I game. You two relax me. Awesome. That is awesome. Let me know what you're gaming, and I'll respond with what I gave. Yes. Uh, Deuce Volt said, intro music too brash and too long. Lose it. Well... That actually probably has been what people say about us. We're too, <laughs> too brash and too long. But we generally change, change our intro music based on seasons, so mm -hmm. you don't have to wait too long before we take a swing at something new. Yeah. <laughs> we do like to keep some of our stuff kind of fresh for you guys and kind of try to give you guys something new every season when we have our intros to our stuff. All right, that's all of the comments that I think that we got for that one. We're going to go over to Bremerton Monstrosity. The Bremerton Monstrosity was a really fantastic uh, cryptid story that was back from the... Oh, man, I want to say it was the 50s, if I remember from the episode. It's oh, hard man. to remember the, the, the date down. But it was do, you know, the, do you know what we should have named that episode? What? The Scuddling Horror. I remember talking... <laughs> but the thing is, is, I don't think a lot of people have heard of the Bremerton Monstrosity either, Oh, that's either, true. Too. Maybe it's best to make sure that's at the lead, because yeah. it is very obscure. I, I think people need sometimes need to know the, the actual official name of it before we kind of get creative and... Some of our episodes. Oh, that's true. Yeah. Um, Ken Bator said, It was Sheila. Three million years ago, there was a millipede that was six feet long. I'm really wondering if that's a Lord of the Rings reference. Uh, Sheila, Sheila would be a Lord of the Rings reference. But, yeah, there was a, a massive uh, a massive millipede. I've seen, um, like, some of the fossils from it. And I've seen, like, recreations of it. And it's a really freaking cool creature. Also, I'm assuming if that was really Shelob or some sort of other spawn of Ungoliant, uh, that uh, probably that lady would not have made it. <laughs> I don't think she would have made it uh, through this encounter. Also could be why there's not a lot of other encounters similar to it. But uh, Creepy California. Always good to hear from Always you. Always good to hear from you. Creepy California says... Murlocs from Fallout is what came to mind. Love this episode. And gotta ask, I've heard you talk about dogmen, wolfmen, but never coyote men. And I've heard some crazy stories from truckers on the West Coast. I would Ooh. love to go into that. I really would. That would be... Are we talking, are we talking about coyote men or murlocs? Okay. <laughs> well, the thing is, I do, out of the games I play, I don't play Fallout. Now, I'm going to have to poke Ellie about it. Ellie, I know, plays the Fallout games. Uh, absolutely. I think this definitely sounds a lot like... Murlocs from Fallout. They're they're like crab people. But you love I them. Would, uh, yeah, I probably would. I would love, love, love to get into something on coyote people. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. All right. Uh, Lishan said, "Freaky." This one's obscure and unusual. To you guys, delivered again. 
the unheard. As for the fan base name, oh, the, she was the, they were the one that suggested Candlelight Drifters. Well, correct. Congratulations for making it into the finals. Yes. Uh, Guy Prieto said, "I wonder if this is where Stephen King got his inspiration for the Lobstrosity." You know, I wonder that too. I, I haven't read the Lobstrosity, but I know he does delve into like existing folklore sometimes. Oh yeah, and it would not surprise me at all if that's the case. Oh, absolutely! You'd be surprised how many times authors will pour over like old stories and legends in order to get inspiration for their stuff. Like I know, like Freddy Krueger was actually inspired by a real serial killer uh, that was in Oklahoma that had very similar that had a very similar story esque uh, to what you see portrayed in the movies. So you'd be surprised. You'd be surprised how often authors get inspired by some of these really cool old stories that we talk about. Do you know his Lobstrosity? Is that a movie or a book? I think it's his book. I might yeah. have to. I check don't know. That I don't out. know if that's ever actually been made into a movie, but I think that's one of his books. Uh, Galaxy Wolf nine nine eight eight says, "This was so Lovecraftian. I love it when you said use copper against them. All I thought of is people throwing pennies at them. Yes, <laughs> smite them down with your spare chain. My entire." My entire vacation, all I did was collect the pennies in order, like, in case, like, some sort of weird crab lobster monster was going to come out of the ocean. Most of my family thought I was I was acting crazy. I'm like, you don't know what I know. Okay, you haven't seen what I've seen. Oh, goodness. <laughs> just, just make sure you jam it in there. Yeah. Like, you know, it's so funny, like, when you're really into the paranormal stuff, and when you become in the know on so many of these things, how it can affect, like, your just everyday life and things like that. Like, it just, that's just why I just find stuff like that funny. <sighs> okay, so I think it is about time to get into today's episode. Looking forward to it. Absolutely. So today, guys, I thought that we were getting kind of into a, a, a UFO, alien-esque uh, story. So I thought we would talk to you guys today. We would talk to you about the story about Gary McKinnon. Now, Gary McKinnon is a guy who came across my radar only in the last couple of years. I knew of him, and I kind of knew of his story, but I knew that um, when I was watching a lot of stuff, like on Bob Lazar, and I'm checking Bob Lazar, like out on, you know, the Joe Rogan podcast and stuff, I'm like, you know... Not, Bob Lazar is really cool, but there are other people that have come forward since Bob Lazar that has talked about their experience in, you know, with dealing with the government or investigating the government and finding stuff out about, like, UFOs and stuff like that. And <laughs> Gary McKinnon is a great story to just delve into. So Gary McKinnon is essentially kind of one of the first hackers of his day. So this, his real story in this is Gary McKinnon gets into hacking and he's really inspired uh, by Hugo Cornwall's, I think it's called The Hacker's Handbook. And when this book initially comes out, um, most people didn't understand how easily it was for people to hack into certain computer systems. I mean, um, when Gary McKinnon's story talks, we are in the 2001, right before September 11th, thing like that. We're in dial-up internet days, okay, guys? We're not really at the best um, cybersecurity that we have ever been uh, in our nation's history. So a, lot of, so a lot of people that are, you know, in the forefront of being hackers are way ahead of people that are trying to uh, combat <laughs> uh, computer hackers, so they got a super, super head start. So, 
Gary McKinnon uh, really get comes up like gives this idea in his head. He initially, when you watch interviews with him, what he says is he became really interested in the idea of finding out information about free energy. So Gary McKinnon had heard of Bob Lazar. He had heard of other stories. He'd been really into UFO and UFO tech. And had heard the stories that the government for years has been sitting on anti-gravity machines, things like that, spacecraft, this kind of tech, this kind of sort of like black technology, the secret technology that they were not releasing to the general public. And he has always been fascinated about trying to get his hands on, on information about essentially for like free energy technology. So he decides that he is going to try to hack into the United States government. Now, I probably should be, um, to let you guys know that, that Gary is from London, okay? He's in London, and he decides he's going to hack into the U.S. government to see if he can find any information on free energy technology. Truthfully, I cannot believe how well this works out for oh. him. Oh, it does. So, essentially, he comes up with this really simple computer hack. He comes up with, he, he gets a, a software program that essentially, once you know a computer's IP address, like once you know it, you can try to get into the administrator's profile. And he essentially writes this program and uses this program where it's going to check any computer that's IP address that it knows that it can, is going to check to see if the administrative profile on the computer is either blank or the password is just password. Yes, mm. yes. And when he does this, he gets into hundreds upon hundreds of US Army, Navy, and NASA computers. Man, I'm just sitting here shaking my head, man. Yes. Okay. So, like, I think those, those of you guys that have ever had, like, your IT department kind of, like, get into your computer and you can see kind of, like, the mouse cursor moving around. This is essentially what he does. He does this to hundreds and hundreds of U.S. government computers for the span of about 18 months. From about February of 2001 till I think, about March of 2002. He just starts sifting through... Dozens and dozens of high-profile U.S. government stuff looking for free energy technology and snooping around for stuff on UFOs or anything else he can find. He has The funny part about this is he has to do this um, essentially at, at various times because, again, the way that he does this, you can tell if he's on your computer because the mouse cursor would be moving around. So the way that he had to go about doing this was that he had to do it when it was really late at night, like third shift and you know, military bases in NASA, whenever people wouldn't notice this mouse cursor moving around and clicking on and looking through files. So I'm really wondering how many stories there are from back in that day about NASA, about like cleaning people walking around and just seeing the computers just on and turning on and moving on on their own. <laughs> the haunted computers <laughs> yes. in NASA. I'm I guarantee you that has to be a story throughout NASA that's just not being told. I There's just, there's just no way. Because he does this for years and he does this over hundreds and hundreds of computers. So he starts like rifting through uh, all of these different computer files and he's trying to have to search to see what he can find. One of the things that he claims that he found while searching through there was an Excel spreadsheet. And on the Excel spreadsheet, it was titled Non-Terrestrial Officers. And it just lists all of these military personnel. And then below that is it a shorter list of what he claimed to be about Eight to ten, I think, is what he estimates when he does interviews. Ships, entitled USS Blank. Any, like, there's a there's a History Channel 
show about him and his story. And if you watch the History Channel episode involving him, they try to make all these weird claims that he says that they're all people that are connected to, like, the Majestic 12. Like, really 1940s uh, secret shadow cabinet, this council that advised the government, the president and the government on UFO technology and aliens and all of this sorts of things. Like, their names are all, like, ships on this list but if you watch interviews like when i watched an interview with him in 2015 which is like three years after the history channel episode of them comes out he's not saying he, he pretty much says he can't remember the actual name so i don't know where that history channel episode is getting this whole thing if he knows these names because he says he can't remember and they tend to play a little fast and lose yeah, yeah. the facts it's an ancient it's so. an ancient alien episode. i watched it it's really cool and you can get the real cool story out of it but it's that part I found kind of weird because they're not really accurately reflecting the actual story in this. I'm gonna give it to you as straight as I can um, when I'm when I'm talking about this today. Um, yeah, and they're all listed as USS. And when he's when he's finding this Excel spreadsheet, you you would think that he would find this like in NASA, right? Like non-terrestrial officers. But he actually claims that he found this while he was investigating files for the U.S. Navy, which is weird because I'm pretty sure that I'm pretty sure that the that a lot of NASA and a lot of their astronaut pilots all fall under the Air Force. That does make sense. But if you're looking for, like, the sort of structure you would need for, like, uh, just the practical applications of being on a spaceship, mm -hmm. the Navy the Navy structure would work better for it. Yeah. So this is, like, one of the big, like, parts of his story. Is he talks about seeing all of these, like, these ship names and all of these officer names. The one thing that he that he claims is he doesn't think that these are actual like alien officers, at least to him and what he said what he felt like what he was looking at. He said what he felt like what he was looking at were ships because again they say USS were ships that the U.S. government had that he believed that was operating in space. Because when you listen to Gary McKinnon and he talks, he's a he's a guy that that thinks that we are operating in space using our own ships and using our own crews and things like that. Like more than what, you know, more than what we're letting on. Like we are way further along in our ability to, uh, to like crew spaceships and stuff. I, I've always really wondered like, but cause like he, when he says how, like when he talks about how many names are on this list, he finds of about 40 to about 30 people. So if you break that down, that really only does what maybe like four or five people per ship. Well, isn't his list only the officers? That's true. That's true. He never goes into rank whenever he's interviewed in any of these interviews when he's talking about what ranks he saw. And he says he can't remember names. And according to Gary, he says that he looked up the names of these people, these ships, and he couldn't find any of these ships. I'd be really wondering. I'm really wondering if the USS Orang Madang was on the ship, was on that list. I'm I, not gonna lie. I don't think it was. Uh, he says he care. He says he can't remember. But I, it's proof that you know. I'm just wondering stuff like that. So, yeah. Uh, and it's it's also funny too because he he thinks that we're way more ahead now of what we are in the space race, like what we are you know in the space race than what we were say back in the 1960s. Because it's funny because listening to him in interviews, he talks all the time about he doesn't think that we had the technology to be able to go to the moon. In the 1960s but he thinks that by 2002 we have the technology to have spacecraft floating around in space like floating around in space and stuff like that well one of the questions would be what caused some of these jumps that's a good question um 
Well, and that kind of moves on to the other main thing that he found. So the next thing that he finds while he's snooping around is, so when you, when you listen to Gary talk about his motives for doing what he does, it kind of changes based on when he's being interviewed a little bit, you know, like, you know, when you listen to him now, he says that he was really inspired by his interest in UFOs and he was really inspired by um, the Disclosure Project, which is this massive group of government officials that came out in May of 2001 um, that was talking about their experiences with UFOs and aliens and all that and all that sort of thing. That comes out in May of two of May of 2001. He begins his his snooping and his investigation in February of 2001. So it's a little before what he's talking about in some of his more recent interviews. Um, like two that circa 2006 is when he's talking about he's looking for free technology and stuff. But one of the people that really um, inspired him to to delve deeper was this lady named Donna Hare. Donna Hare is a NASA uh, employee that claimed that she worked out of Building Eight. Uh, and Building 8, supposedly, in NASA was where they essentially photoshopped UFOs out of NASA photographs. Which, I mean, it's something that I think all of us have been assuming has been going on for a long time. There's been uh, a lot of... Really, oh, yeah. And also, like, how conveniently their feeds seem to drop when, yeah. you know... Objects in space take sudden right angle turns. Yeah, for like years and years and years, like NASA was denying that they were ever photoshopping stuff out. And, you know, just as technology has sort of advanced and the general public has gotten um, more intelligent on how to spot photoshopped photos, NASA's had to come forward and say stuff like, uh, yeah, we, we, we photoshop some of our photos, but it's so that we can show a better majesty of space. And, <laughs> and you know what? No, no, no one's going to want to see, you know, that picture of space with that flying saucer. Yeah, yeah. Right? No one's interested in that. Just get yeah. that out yeah. of here. Yeah, and no one's going to be interested just in seeing just, you know, regular photos of space. Because regular space is boring and things like that. We need, <laughs> we need, they're like, you know, NASA's like, space is like the Kardashians. They need to be photoshopped and airbrushed into making it look good. I'm like, wow. So Donna Hare is saying stuff like what happened to her was she was in working in Building 8 and where one of the departments that was, like, next to her or something like that had people whose whole job it was was to Photoshop UFOs out of NASA photographs. And so Gary begins trying to dig deeper into NASA. And apparently NASA, according to Gary, made it really, really easy for him um, in order to find it. Because he says apparently how they broke their buildings down was literally just be like administration building one. They like labeled it like that. So he was literally able to find building eight and just search their search their computers and stuff like that. And while he was investigating it, he found folders on some computers that was said filtered and unfiltered. And when he's under unfiltered, he discovers a photograph of... Essentially, the atmosphere, like Earth's atmosphere, like low orbit, and there's this metallic cigar-shaped object that's in Earth's orbit. Now, keep in mind, guys, we're we're in uh, dial-up internet days, and he's remote accessing into these things, so it's like having to download to. It's like downloading stuff to another computer from another computer. 
in dial-up. So it's it's taking forever and it's having to render while he's watching it. So it's still kind of fuzzy to him. And while he's downloading this photograph, he gets busted. Uh, his mouse, uh, he nearly notices the screen goes down to the disconnect and it gets disconnected and NASA gets cut off. And shortly after that is when the, the UK government uh, goes and arrests him. Because the US government was able to track his IP address and all that and was able to track back to where he was from. And he was now busted and is in jail. Yeah. Uh, a really kind of concerning footnote for this too, what Gary says when you listen to interviews on him, he actually talks a lot about how when he's remote accessing these computers, one of the things he's able to do is see who else is monitoring into these uh, computers at the same time and where they're from. And the whole time he's doing this, he's like, yeah, I'm seeing people from Sweden, Denmark, the USSR, you know, Russia. So there's probably more than just him who made it in there. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Just kind of like lurking and spying onto their stuff. Because, again, according to him, he's like, these like hundreds of, of NASA computers. Just their administrative profiles just were really just either blank. They had no power. They weren't password protected or it was just their password was password. I, I got to say I'm a little disappointed. Yeah. So Gary gets busted. After he gets caught, and initially, what the UK government tell you know the UK the UK government tells him he goes, oh you know don't stop that big a deal, um, you're probably just gonna get some community service, it's all good, and then the US government comes for blood, they're like no we want him extradited, we want him in our country right now, and Gary's like uh well how about no and I don't tell you what I saw, and so the US government's response is to say. Oh no, we're gonna call your bluff, and they're like, "No, we want we want him here." But the UK government initially doesn't want to extradite Gary because, at the time, they were going off like this 1989 extradition treaty, which said that you had to do X amount of damage in order to be extradited to the United States. And then shortly after that, the United States comes back forward and also also starts just claiming stuff like. Oh, no, no, no. He actually, like, did a whole bunch of damage. He was wiping computers while he was in there. He was erasing information, which crashed our systems for days and stuff like that. And, and didn't they say that he even destroyed several of the computers? Oh, yeah. He did, like, the, he almost did close to, like, a million dollars worth of damage. And he's posting, like, like uh, mocking comments on their web pages and things like that and, and information. And now Gary's facing, like, 70 years. He's facing like 70 years in jail on literally trumped up charges at this point. Yes. Yes. And like, and you know, like they magically came forward after saying like, no, no, you know, uh, you have to, you know, this has to be the line. And the United States all of a sudden goes, no, he went way past that line out and just out of nowhere. And then they even write new legislation by 2005. And in order to be able to trump up just even more charges to him, to get him brought over to the United States. He faces like a 10-year legal battle with the United States and the UK government, where initially the UK government's probably going to turn him over, but Gary appeals, and it goes back and forth almost 10 years, till finally like a high-ranking member, Theresa May, of the US, uh, the, the UK government, comes finally lays down the last decision on the matter and says that we can't extradite him to the United States because... Gary suffers from autism and he depression and he might kill himself if we extradite him. 
Which is a very odd sort of excuse. Yeah, I find that kind of odd that that would be the reason that that could get you out of going to jail. But at that, I England's had a odd history with Asperger's syndrome. Like there was a um, guy, he was really obsessed. He had a preoccupation with uh, fly fishing. And he read all these old manuals about fly fishing and the art of creating flies. And a lot of them were written by, like, noblemen from back in the day and talked about using, like, the feathers from birds who are endangered and now extinct. And he ended up stealing a lot of them from one of their natural history museums. And he ended up getting off pretty much scot-free with the fact that he was stealing parts from all these rare birds and rare animals, some of them now extinct. And also just selling them. And they ended up not really pushing the issue. It was so weird. And finally what they ended up telling them was that, you know, we can't extradite them to the United States. But, you know, we, we're not going to extradite Gary to the United States. And we're going to have to charge him here in the UK. But the charges end up getting dropped because eventually all of the evidence was only in the United States. Like, because when he got arrested, the United States seized his computer and all this information, which is why, and he's never gotten it back, which is, again, why we don't have, like, the Excel spreadsheet that he's talking about or the photograph that uh, he claimed that he saw and things like that. Do you know what it sounds like to me? Hmm? It sounds like the British did not want to give this guy up. It sounds like they considered him, for one reason or another, to be an asset. Well, it sounded like the United States government was also just dramatically embarrassed for how bad they were protecting themselves from cyber criminals. There's reasons for them to be embarrassed in this situation. Absolutely. They did a poor job. Absolutely. You know, and it's weird, like, talking about, like, how um, differently this was perceived uh, in the media. Like, how Gary was portrayed in the United States as compared to the United Kingdom. Like, in the United Kingdom, initially, like, he, you know, he's, you know, he's he's on the news for, for what he did and things like that. But the, in the in the United States... There's only an initial, uh, like flare-up of him about on the on on the U.S. news, but at the same time they're like calling him like the 9/11 hacker. It was very weird. Like you know he, they were really trying to just frame him as being this really awful. Now don't get me wrong, he broke the law and I get that, you know. But they're trying to make him look like this. You know, they're trying to make him look like a terrorist. Yeah. Where I guess, yeah, kinda, but I don't really think that he was trying to be malicious. I think he's trying to bring the truth to the yeah, world. he was trying to snoop. You know, because if you look at, like, you know, now, fun fact, he actually has a YouTube channel where you can kind of go and check out what he's up to now, and he's just really interested in, you know, doing his experiment projects, trying to work on things like motion and energy and things like that, and into UFOs. He's really, now he's more interested in, like, what we're doing on Mars, and he's like always, you know what's funny? He still reaches out to NASA, questions them about all their doctor <laughs> photographs, but he has to do it under like a fake uh, email because <laughs> they won't email him back. Think, do you think he gets no response or super catty responses? Uh, he gets he gets both sometimes. <laughs> like he, he has to come up with new like emails all the time. Well, he says he has to come up with new emails whenever they reach out to him because sometimes they just won't email him back or they come up with like really terrible answers and stuff. Doesn't he do also like let's plays and stuff? Yeah, he does some, which was also, which is also cool. I mean, he's a really cool guy. Like, he's very much like Bob Lazar. He never changes. He's a lot like Bob Lazar in that he never changes his story about what he saw, what he did. He doesn't add to it. He doesn't flare it up. He doesn't really seem to be looking for money. 
And he did this. At one point, he was trying to write a book, <laughs> but I don't think an actual... I don't think the book ever gets published. Because I went looking for it uh, when I saw this, like, 2015 interview uh, with Richard Hall. And I didn't see any actual, like, book that I could, like, order to see kind of, like, from his perspective on things. One of the things that I will say as to its credibility is the level of consistency over time. Mm-hmm. I think there's only one fact that seems kind of fudged, and that's the whole thing about his motive on why he was initially wanting to do it and how it doesn't quite match up with the date. But besides that, he is extremely consistent over time. Well, keep in mind, when he, when he's talking about his motives... In his early interviews where he's talking about it, he's still facing legal charges. So he's probably wanting to make himself kind of look like a nice guy. He's probably trying to give some mitigating circumstances. You know, like in 2006, he's like, you know, his interview in 2006 that he does, which you can find, he's like, you know, I was really interested in in finding free energy because it's not fair that countries go to war over oil and really impoverished families have to pay, you know, so much of their uh, paychecks into gas and stuff like that. But if you look at him, like, after 2012, he's like, you know, I'm really interested in UFOs and what they're doing on Mars, and it's just totally a little different, which which I get. You know, I, I think he's... And you clean up your act when you're facing charges. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know this from firsthand experience. I've never faced charges. But, I mean, if I was facing charges, I would try to clean up my act. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm going to give myself a, you know, it's better to look like a this holistic individual for why you were doing what you were doing. You know, when some of the world thinks that, you know, you were a, a terrorist and, you know, wiping, you know, right after 9-11, wiping out dozens of U.S. Army computers and stuff. <sighs> so, I think one of the first things I'd really like to unpack on this is, considering that America and England are pretty strong allies... Why do you think there was such a fierce mounted defense to keep him? I think part part of it is because it's you know we, with with different governments and stuff there there's kind of a pride thing that goes along and there's a sense of wanting to protect your your own citizens. And stuff to make sure that they're not being taken advantage of by another by another country's legal system, and things like that. So I think that's maybe an initial reason of that's pushback about why they may not have been wanting to um, extradite him to the United States. I don't know. I'm not buying it because, well, for for how much America wanted this and how strong of allies we are, I am. I really feel like they had to have really wanted him. My, my main thought is they had to feel, feel that he is an asset to them that is worth that fight. Well, again, again, this is this is the early age of computer hacking. Mm-hmm. You know, um, this is, you know, to them, maybe they, maybe they saw Gary as a possibility of someone that they might be able to employ for themselves. Now, I could see that being a thing. He's the man who hacked the U.S. military. Yeah. And I could see them believing that He's going to be the sort of asset that they're going to utilize moving forward. But when it all comes down to it, wasn't he not like the world's best hacker? He was just having to exploit some systems. Yeah, yeah. He, I think in the end that's what it is. Truthfully, what I think the reason why they didn't want to actually him was because they probably were wanting to know what else he saw. I think it's either that or I have an alternate theory. Mm-hmm. That they put him up to it. That this was not a 
just random guy who went ahead and did this for his fun that he was basically this was a assignment for him to do to get in make sure our allies are sharing all the information they have and then when he gets caught they close ranks and try to or try to protect their agent because if he goes to the u.s guess what secret they might get out that he was put up to doing it and that's something that the british would really 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 not want to come out okay the weird thing though is that major world powers know they're all spying on each other like it's not like a super surprise to them whenever they find a spy from another country so i don't know if it would be i don't know if it would necessarily be in their worst interest for them being like oh look there was this uk hacker that that, that got it now i think that they were concerned about what he saw that there may be more that he is not coming forward with because he was, you know, deep in another country's military files. I mean, so they probably uh, wanted to keep him close. There's a good chance that he is still holding back some level of information because if I was in his situation, I would want to keep every card I could in my hand. So there could be things that he's holding back on to kind of use as leverage yeah. if his situation gets bad. But even if it is a matter of, say, it does, they wouldn't fight this hard because America Priori knows that British has, Britain has spies, mm. this probably was not his first mission. He might know some ancillary information that's not necessarily directly related to the U.S. that he might use to get out of his situation, something like, that Britain didn't want shared. Like, I know that there is this idea about, like, black technology, technology the government has that they slowly trickle to the public. I think it's true. I, I think yeah. it's true too. But I think when it comes to computers, the the general public, I think, had a, a better handle on what to do with computers, like basic computers, than the government seemed to. It just seems to be like, if you think about, I don't know, mods and stuff, like the, 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 the general community of what people, the average person can do with a computer can sometimes far exceed, ex, out exceed what some of our even best government agent agencies can do. I mean, look, he said he was able to hack in with dozens and dozens of computers not being properly protected. I mean, you can't underestimate human negligence. That is true. Like... <laughs> there's always going to be that person who doesn't take the necessary precautions. And there's always going to be that other person who's ready to exploit the fact that that necessary precaution wasn't taken. Now, I mean, if we're, if we're believing that Gary is telling the truth, which I do, I do, I do think that he's telling the truth. He is just pointing out this obvious flaw that, that that seemed to have existed in the system because you would think that like if the U.S. government had access to computers way before the general public knew what they were doing with them, that they would have been able to protect the computers in the Army, Navy, and NASA, which are three very highly, you know, secure, air quotes, systems, or that need to be that secure. So let's double back to this to or. Uh, non-terrestrial officers thing. Okay. I am struggling to think of a different meaning that makes sense than people, like, located in space. 
Because I none or or other dimensions, I guess, would also make sense. But the thing is, a non-terrestrial officer, as I understand that wording, would pretty much mean an officer stationed not on Earth. Yeah, you'd also really wonder. You'd also really gotta wonder, like, would they literally just attach all of those names on a one spreadsheet? Yeah, I believe they would. I bet you, you that they... So? Well, the thing is, they would... Someone in the military would be like, Oh, oh yeah, hey, probably, we, yeah, we need okay. a quick compiled list, so if we need all these names, we can pull them up right away yeah, and not true. even consider it potentially falling into enemy hands. I believe that they would put it all on a spreadsheet. Mm. Um, because in an emergency situation, they just look at the ship, look at the person, they know who they need to contact or hold liable if there's an issue. Mm-hmm. Like... Think about like us working in a hospital. Everything's very compartmentalized, similar to in that sort of way. I mean, True. There's definitely going to be spreadsheets, uh, and we we see those on a daily basis. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. The nurses have to like write down like what unit we're working on, and what nurses are there, what mm-hmm. techs are there, and things like that. Yeah, I could see, I could see like just a random person having a spreadsheet then and, and doing something like that. But one of my thoughts is, does this mean we have our own ships operating non-terrestrially? Or that we have officers stationed on ships that belong to other people. Ours. Because they're using, they, they all have the tagline, uh, USS. I would imagine even if they were working with, like, say, for this example, aliens, I believe that they would they would re- make, make it a point to retain their U.S. Uh, title. But you think that we would put USS on another, on another species ship? I think that we would insist our officers retain that, or at least we would at least document them as being that. Because the thing is, they might have this officer rank as a U.S. officer, but as a, I'm going to use just the example I understand, Starfleet, Mm -hmm. (laughs) they might have their own set of titles. True. But even if you go back to using Starfleet as an example, whenever a, say, like, William T. Riker was on was was a part of the officer exchange program to the Klingons. He was just on the, uh, you know, bird of prey is what he was is what he was on in that ship. They didn't rename it the USS, you know, insert thing just because he was on it. Oh, okay, I, I I get what you're saying. I get what you're saying. Yeah, uh, I actually kind of forgot that they had the names of the ships. <laughs> Sorry, that that's my bad. That's yeah. my bad. But that's why. I, but I, I think that's why. What what I that's why I think they're just regular. Sh- there are ships that we have that we named, and that's again, that's it makes sense if they're working for the navy, they'd have the tag USS, insert whatever what it is, and and that they're out. You know, but I don't think that are. But you know what's weird though? I don't think that our uh, something I found odd though is I don't think their actual like shuttlecraft is called the USS like Columbia or USS. Enterprise, even when they had that, I think that they were just like it was just called like Space Shuttle Columbia and all that things. I don't think they had that tag. What? Hmm. What do you think this quote unquote space force is being utilized for? Oh, oh, okay. You want to get into that? Well, it, it, I think it's a natural conclusion if we assume that he's telling the truth and that his memory is correct about this list existing. Oh yeah. Like what I want to know is. What are they doing? Like, we're calling this... I think... Okay, again, governments are the kind of... These are the kind of people that have to think 20, 50, 100 years in the future. This is just what these guys have to do. And I think if they're thinking, like... If they're looking at the technology that they have, and they're looking at our current situation, and technology about where we may end up, there probably has been somebody since the 1960s 
that's been talking about the idea of us having a U.S. military presence or U.S. U.S. military presence in space. This has been a thing. The Russians have had a U.S. space for, have had a space force longer than we have. You know, this has been a thing that they've had ready to go. I think this is just a natural progression of what it is. So, you know, yeah, it's kind of funny when we talk about having a U.S. space force, but. I, but do you think that their goal is explorative? Do you think it is militaristic? All do you it. think it's scientific? Again, again, you're thinking it's like compartmentalizing. So you think it's probably multidisciplinary? It. Yeah, it's a multidisciplinary thing. At some point, they're probably going to think, in the natural progression of things, it's explorative, it's militaristic, and then it's scientific. Remember, maybe scientific and then militaristic. At some point, all of these three things are going to occur in space. Well, if they get any cool information on Naropa, I hope they share it with us because Naropa is a really interesting moon, yeah. and I kind of feel like there's some potential there for life. Yeah. At the end of the day, do you believe him? I think that there, if he was trying to make up a lie to cover up his own interest, there are much better lies for him to have come up with. Mm -hmm. I, Unless he's a very bad planner, I think that... There's just better ways he could have covered himself up Absolutely. and better excuses to have given than I found this information on UFOs. Yeah. That's what makes me think this guy may very well be telling the truth. I think if we are being deceived here, it's a situation where he stumbled into false information like they had a false cache set up on the computers. I don't think it's a direct lie. Like, truthfully, I find it maybe a little bit more believable than even Bob Lazar because if you look at what Gary's been done, he doesn't seem like he's had a real financial interest in talking about the things that that he's gone through uh we don't with this like bob lazar comes up with a new documentary at least every 10 years where he's talking about like his experiences in area 51 and gary mckinney just seems to just pop up every now and then and he just continues to tell the same story and it's really not changed it's really not embellished that much from from his you know by him so i am a really big fan of how consistent his story does remain. yeah What's your thoughts? I think I think he's likely legit. I think he's like legit. I think what happened was he he discovered some things deep down in in the U.S. government's files, like in their secret files. I think he definitely stumbled upon some things uh, that he was not supposed to have found, and I think that the U.S. government probably was trying to retaliate. In order to make an example out of him. Oh, they obviously trumped up oh, the yeah. charges. And was trying to make sure that's that to silence him. And to make sure that something like this doesn't happen again. Now, I believe there's a whole side to this story we do not know yet. Because oh, yeah. I do not believe that England would so fiercely defend him against their ally. Oh. I think there has to be more oh. to this. And deep down, I also think he, has, he knows more than what he's letting on. 100%. The dude was literally... Inside the U.S. government, Army, Navy, and NASA files for 18 months. And the only two things that he ever talks about is this Excel spreadsheet. Maybe some, you know, this Excel spreadsheet and this UFO file that he found. 18 months. 18 months he's rifling through, through things. And he can't come up with a whole lot of other stuff to talk about. There's no way. I wonder if he has a cache somewhere that's just not being talked about that hasn't been divulged. Because if I'm doing this for this long, I would had to. I personally would have come to the conclusion that I may be caught, and I would have printed these out and created a physical cache like, hidden somewhere. Like if I had to really make, if I had to make a guess on what he found, 
I think he probably found more information on anti-gravity technology that he was initially going to look for. Because he talked a lot about that in early 2006, but not a whole lot after his charges got dropped. After his charges got dropped. I'm really wondering... Like maybe there might have been an agreement yeah, set up at yeah. some point. I'm really wondering if he was able to find more information. There's no way. Like, you couldn't rifle through, you know, your friend's computer for 18 months, and then I have a ton of random things that you could talk about of stuff you found in there. Even if it was mundane stuff, like in the Army, the Navy, or NASA, just mundane stuff. There would be interesting things to talk about, but the only two things he talks about are these two, are these two things when he's interviewed. It's just it leaves it leaves a little bit in the back of my mind. What, what really is he getting at? Like what what else is he not talking about? Something else that I thought was odd is I've been aware of this story for quite some time, and I remember there used to be a lot of information out there on this on YouTube on the internet, mm-hmm. and I went back and tried to find some of these links and videos that I had seen years and years ago. But guess what? Yeah, they're hard to find. Yeah, they're, they're incredibly hard to find. I, like, most of it is just seems to be gone nowadays. Well, I re- I'm really wondering if it was cleaned up in the the YouTube conspiracy purge like that they, they were trying to do. Then. There's a lot of there's a lot more interviews of him that are in, uh, that have uh, done with in Spanish hmm. than in English. Yeah, I noticed that that there is a lot more information out there on him in languages I simply do not speak. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, but no, I I think there's way more going on uh, than what he's letting on, and I think that was probably a big part of him not getting extradited to the United States. Because again, he gets caught a year after nine eleven, where the United States is writing stuff like the Patriot Act, the these new cybercrime laws in two thousand five. They're calling him the nine eleven cyberhacker. There's no way that they're not coming for blood in all of this. And to tell you the truth, and I know that we're going over at this point, but I think the real crux of this mystery comes down to how the hell did he not actually get extradited? I think that's where the crux of the mystery really comes in. Something pivotal happened there. And I really want to know your guys' thoughts. Put your thoughts in the comments below on what you guys think about Gary, his story, what we've talked about, what you think... Uh, was the reason why he didn't get extradited back to the United States. Love to hear your guys' thoughts. But until next time, guys, keep believing. Because we'll keep listening. So, okay, for our patron content today, I thought that I would talk a little bit about my vacation uh, down to Orange Beach and my trip out to Fort Morgan. But Marcus, why would you talk about your vacation? This is a paranormal-based podcast. Because Fort Morgan was supposed to be incredibly haunted. So I thought I would talk about that uh, today for you guys. And if you guys are listening to this um, for the first time, uh, this part of the podcast is for our uh, patrons. So if you want to get the rest of the podcast after this point, uh, go over to our Patreon and sign up to become a patron and you get the rest of this 15-20 minute um, part of every episode. Come on, guys. It's just a dollar a month. You get a hour of content roughly every month. We do an extra 15 minutes on each episode. Come on, guys. Just do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. No, I, I get it. I get it. It's all good. But if you do like us, it does really help us keep going. Mm-hmm. It does. But I thought I would talk to you guys a little bit about my experiences uh, with checking out Fort Morgan. 
Um, it was a lot. Of, it was a lot of fun going out there. So uh, Fort Morgan is a decommissioned fort. It's essentially a state park now uh, that rests in uh, a little bit to the west of Gulf Shores, uh, down in Alabama. In order to get there, you have to drive out to essentially this island uh, or this peninsula, and you drive out there, and almost like almost 360 degrees of this fort is surrounded by water. Uh, with a small little sliver of land that is what leads up uh, to this fort. And this fort uh, pretty much was uh, commissioned uh, and was operated almost through World War II uh, until it was finally decommissioned. And now it's essentially a state park. We can go and